Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. In the early 20th century, the idea that big is bad drove a muscular federal antitrust policy that viewed large corporations with deep suspicion. Then, in the 1980s, the Federal Trade Commission began to incorporate the lessons of economics, considering the welfare of consumers. Today, the Biden FTC wants to undo the last 40 years of antitrust policy, which it sees as a failed experiment. Is the Biden administration right? To answer that question, I brought on Timothy J. Morris. Tim is a visiting senior fellow here at the American Enterprise Institute and a foundation professor at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University. He served as chairman of the Federal Trade Commission under President George W. Bush. Tim's latest report for AI is Neil Brandeisian Antitrust, Repeating History's Mistakes. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. We're talking about Neil Brandeisian Antitrust. Let's start with who is Brandeis? Well, he, he was a very famous uh, lawyer and then justice on the Supreme Court who developed a uh, he, he was famous originally for developing a way of thinking about applying evidence to cases. Uh, but then he became most famous for being an advocate for populism, for being a, 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 a and for opposing bigness. Uh, of all sorts, bigness in uh, in banking, in in the government, uh, and uh, and an advocate for de- for decentralization. And so this is a Supreme Court justice in the 1930s. Uh, well, he was appointed by Wilson, and he went through the 30s. And a, a justice concerned about corporate power. Yes, but it was he, unlike his modern disciples, was also concerned about government power. What is the sort of legal approach to antitrust law under that sort of, under under Brandeisian antitrust or talking 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s? Well, it would be a classic. He he came to uh he he wrote something very famous in the pre-World War I era that that essentially is big as bad. Uh, and he was quite afraid of the of the robber barons uh, of the, the the so-called robber barons and did not appreciate uh, the rise of uh, uh, and the benefits of industrial concentration. So under un, under a Brandeisian framework, what did they look at and how did they they decide whether uh, companies should combine, whether they should be broken up? How, how what was sort of their approach? What was their methodology? Well, the, and I'll, I'll give you a political bookend in a second. But <clears throat> the antitrust was quite simple. It it was literally big is bad. We ought not. Uh, we ought to be willing to sacrifice the benefits of of bigness uh, for uh, uh, the deconcentration. The the political endpoints were perfectly illustrated by FDR. In 1936, against the advice of many of his advisors, he ran against the economic royalists. Right. And, and he said they were creating they were creating slavery, wage slavery. In December 1940, in a very famous uh, fireside chat, the economic royalists had become, lo and behold, the arsenal of democracy. 
and uh, as I write in this uh, long report that's on AEI, uh, I asked the, the, the question, if Brandeis had had his way, would there have been an arsenal of democracy to, uh, to defeat, uh, to win World War II? Interesting question. So how did it how did the government then approach antitrust after World War II, even after we've seen the advantages of of having some big companies? Well, an, an interesting thing uh, uh, happened. <clears throat> there was a very Brandeisian populist wave uh, in the 50s and 60s and into the 70s uh, associated with with, uh, again, big is bad. And for a time economists, industrial organization economists actually believed uh, in something called the simple market concentration doctrine, which posited that there was a close correlation between the number of firms in an industry and the extent of concentration. Now, that belief disappeared in the 70s, uh, uh, led by the so-called Chicago School, but it was also embraced across the antitrust spectrum. Can you give me an example or two of classic Brandeisian antitrust in action? Two examples that I discuss in the in in the in the report. One involves uh, very small companies that were not allowed uh, to merge. There's a there's a merger in Los Angeles between two grocery chains that have a seven and a half percent combined share. When Southern California in the 1950s and 60s is exploding, we we moved to San Diego when I was in seventh grade. Uh, and I actually would would walk with a dime to buy the L.A. Times, which had a better sports <laughs> page, which is what I cared about uh, than the San Diego papers. Uh, and uh, uh, they stopped this merger uh, in an opinion uh, that was an ode to 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 smallness. The second example is something called the Robinson Patman Act. Uh, there's the, uh, which of uh, which Brandeis was a supporter. Uh, there's something called the Great Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company. Uh, 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 which is now is no longer exists, uh, but it was the largest uh, retailer in the United States for forty years. It was such a important part of America that the young John Updike, fresh off of writing the the greatest sports essay in in history, though I don't know if you're a baseball fan, but it's the in 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 nineteen sixty one he he wrote this essay about Ted Williams's last at bat, which which has the great line when Williams refused to tip his hat that gods do not answer mail. Well, a, a, a few months after that, he published another essay in in uh, this time a short story in the New Yorker, which everyone in my generation in California read in high school. and and he was looking for a symbol of of middle American culture. In, in the in in mid America mid 20th century America and so he set the story and called the story a and P uh and a and P was a revolution it was the uh it, it used the same kind of tactics uh business strategy that Walmart and then Amazon used to revolutionize uh, uh the, the way people bought uh groceries. Uh, and that caused an incredible uh, revolt by the by the competitors uh, who were who were harmed, uh, and they passed a statute aimed to aimed at at hurting them, uh, and that's another example of the of 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 Brandeisian antitrust. But then, antitrust theory began to think a lot more about consumers. Sort of, why did that happen? 
That's that's correct. And it really started one of the problems with the with the neo Brandesians is is they hold out Bob Bork uh, as this supervillain. Now, I, I knew Bork. He was affiliated with AEI. Look, Bork was a giant in in uh, uh, in the law and, and an antitrust. But they hold him out as a villain. I heard one of them call him this bearded Rasputin. Obviously, the person had never seen a picture of the original Rasputin. Uh, and and but but Bork uh, was not responsible for what happened. There were a lot of people uh, affiliated across the antitrust spectrum who decided that things like the Robinson-Patman Act and attacking these small mergers was the wrong approach, that we needed to focus on consumers. And so something developed called the Consumer Welfare Standard. And, and to illustrate the neo-Brandesians, two years ago, President Biden uh, issued uh, an executive order. And in that executive order, he said the last 40 years of antitrust, which uh, uh, included 16 years of Democrats, uh, was an experiment failed. And he blamed it on Bork. Uh, he, he really should have blamed it on on Justice Breyer, who had uh, and people at Harvard who had as much to do with it as people at Chicago. But of course, that would not have been as as convenient uh, of a of a of a target. But they were they they criticized this focus on consumers, and they are interested in in, in labor, in protecting competitors, in a lot of things that that have been abandoned. So you're absolutely right, Jim, to focus on consumers. Why should we focus on consumers? What what do you see as the as the benefit of the past forty or so years of focusing on consumers? That how do what benefit did they get that they weren't getting under the previous antitrust regime? Well, if you uh, you know the simple example I gave uh, you know somewhat uh, 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 in jest about the arsenal of democracy. Uh, obviously, the arsenal of democracy helped win World War II, but it also gave tremendous benefits to consumers. If you look at the at the at the chain store revolution, the chain store uh, another example, the chain store revolution. One of the things it did was bypass the middleman. That was the way it lowered costs. Uh, and in lowering costs, the people that helped the most were the were the relatively poor people. Those were the people uh, uh, that are helped the most, and not just by lowering costs, it improved the quality of their diet. Uh, the, the chain stores, on average, uh, 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 had more nutritious, higher quality food, uh, and I'm a product of the law and economics movement. Uh, and that stable legal environment, by focusing on the consumer, you can act, and using economics to guide that, you can actually develop a predictable law, and that predictable law helped the economy to grow. And one of the things that I know you've talked about, one of the, the things that I, I really like about about your work, is just how well the economy uh, uh, has done. You know, the period from uh, I think I've heard you say I can't remember the exact year, something like 1983 to 2008. I, I might have it wrong a little bit, but, it, it, you know, it's the greatest period in history for the elimination of poverty. Uh, and and that had a lot to do with 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 more and more economies led by the United States uh, embracing a market economy. And that market economy needs needs rules and stability and and focusing on consumer principles is a, a, a way to do that. 
It seems to me that a lot of the critique of the consumer welfare standard comes down to personal preference. They like the aesthetics of small downtown shops. They don't like the aesthetics of Walmart. That seems to ignore the fact that consumers care a lot about good prices, but they seem to feel that the consumer welfare standard undermines that preference for the small and the local. Well, you know, I I, I think you're right about that. The the oddity is they are quite concerned about these about these big companies, Google, Apple, uh, it, it was Facebook. Now we have to substitute Meta and Amazon, and and now Microsoft is back in, and. The the irony is these elites use these, uh, you know, use these companies more than 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 maybe people in the, in the hinterlands. Walmart has managed to arise outside of the media centers. Uh, I I uh, wrote an article about about the about the AMP. Uh, and uh, you know, talked about how and and you know, Walmart and Amazon uh, were were the successors in some ways, but the the media centers and the elites missed Walmart. There's an article in I believe it's Forbes in circa 1990 that says, "Is Kmart or Sears going to be the next dominant big retailer?" The word Walmart is not in the article. In a few years. Walmart was as big as either, and and by near the end of the decade, it was bigger than both combined. How could someone writing in one of the major business publications not even know this company existed? Well, it was the it was the accident of Sam Walton's birth, and he managed to grow this giant thing outside of the outside of the two the, the two coasts and the two major media centers and and in that way it arose and it arose in it arose in middle america uh and and that was very uh uh i think important to the to the growth of Am- of walmart and in a way walmart escaped the political attacks that happened to both the ANP uh, 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 which was uh, New York based, and to Amazon, a uh, 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 course which the, the elites know, you know everything about. So we, so people who consider themselves neo Brandesian, they don't much like Walmart, but obviously a lot of the focus has been on on the big tech companies. They're big, and and perhaps the argument doesn't need to go any further than that. But what is sort of their core critique? What is the problem that they think is created by this bigness? That is a that is a very good question. They believe that these big companies uh, have have been harmful in 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 a lot of complex ways. They believe they've harmed their workers. Uh, they believe that the consumer benefits uh, uh, that the that that we shouldn't fix fixate on on consumers on the right of course there's a lot of dislike of these big companies but it's not on real antitrust grounds it's it's you know it's on what's called content moderation you know is that the big companies are censoring uh uh opinions on the right uh and and the neo-brandesians really believe uh as did the original brandeis uh, uh, in a world, and, and partly for aesthetic reasons, uh, uh, in a in in a world of deconcentration, uh, they they actually talk about about political power, and they want uh, 
Tim Wu, who was the head of the, the, the competition czar in the White House, he actually wrote that we ought to we ought to have politic make politics part of our considerations. Well, in a world of you know, one of the things I I wrote in response to that is well, Donald Trump complained about you know mergers were harming conservatives. Do you really want you know? You, I mean, merger policy should should favor conservatives. I mean, do you really want uh, uh, that to be a consideration? Whether merger policies favors liberals or conservatives? I mean, I mean that's that's awfully dangerous. Uh, and but it's it's this whole smorgasbord of 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 concerns that 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 quite frankly are are somewhat incoherent now. And I don't know if we'll get to this. They issued uh, new merger proposed merger guidelines, uh, but those are interesting because uh, Blue Billenthal, a colleague of mine, said that they're really Corinthians nine twenty two, which is you know they're all things that which is the the verse or the passage that says all things to all people. Uh, but uh, it, 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 it is a philosophy that rejects, uh, it, it's more negative than positive. It rejects what came before in favor of, of a kind of, a, of give us discretion and we'll do the right thing. I remember watching a multi-day antitrust conference held at the University of Chicago a few years ago about what comes after the consumer welfare standard. But the complaint was so multifaceted. The speakers mentioned everything from inequality to privacy issues to big tech companies creating addictive products. Yet I didn't get a real sense of what standard they thought should replace the consumer welfare standard. And that seems like a recipe for uncertainty in the business environment. I agree. You know, everything is everything is nothing. A problem with these merger guidelines is... I've I've already talked to some people, and and you have people all the way from Lena Khan, the chair of the FTC, who's the most aggressive of these neo-Brandesians, to the 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 chief economist uh, uh, in the antitrust division, who's a, 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 a you know wonderful economist supporting these merger guidelines. Uh, and if the two of them support a document, then the document is is uh, pliable and flexible, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, you know, the document will take two historically irreconcilable parts of antitrust law and has put both of them in there. So you can choose which part you like. Uh, so I don't know that it's going to be a very useful document. To me, a really good example of sort of the uh, the attitude of these uh, antitrust reformers, as they would like to think of themselves, was this recent essay that Lena Khan wrote in The New York Times. We must regulate AI. Here's how. Um, I, I mean, I'm not even sure we can, at this point, we can properly define what you would be regulating exactly since it seems to change every month. And yet there seems to be a great deal of confidence that we can, not only that we should, but that we know how to regulate it, I guess, uh, through antitrust law and other, and other regulations that would fall under the purview of the FTC. Uh, I'm a little astounded by that. Look, there are legitimate issues for the FTC. But the FTC should be gathering information, uh, you know, trying to set a, you know, a baseline so they can understand as opposed to try to jump in prematurely uh, and, and, and establish new, new guidelines. The FTC works best in this, in this sort of common law system. It does have basic rules of the road, which are so basic we don't even think of them uh, as rules, but you know there are rules that say that 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 you don't engage in fraud. You you know you keep your contracts. You don't fix prices with your competitors. You know things like you know things that come out of the common law. 
but the the the, the neo Brandesians, you know, they want to, you know, they want more, you know, they want they want control. And unfortunately, on both the left and the right, you know, industrial policy has returned, uh, and and it's returned with a vengeance. And of course, the history of trying to do industrial policy has been has been terrible. I'm, you know, you you, you and I are both old enough to remember the Vogue about the Japanese. When yeah, the, indeed, yeah, and, indeed, and of course that went nowhere. What I find particularly strange is that rather than viewing. AI as uh, as this technology, which suddenly requires a lot of rapid and aggressive action, I would think it would act. It should actually inspire humility. There was this assumption, particularly with technology, that you had these big companies. They were quote forever companies. They were so powerful and so dominant that that we needed some sort of you know antitrust action, break them up, do something. That oh we, you know now we 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 need to regulate this technology even though that technology seems to be creating exactly the kind of you know dynamic environment that you would want. Yeah, and that that's so fundamentally anti-Brandeis in the in the original sense of Brandeis was the the Brandeis brief was bringing evidence to bear on an on a problem and 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 these people are in many ways anti anti-evidence, uh, which is, you know, very dangerous. Going forward, any modifications that you would that you would add to the consumer welfare standard or antitrust more broadly? Sure. Look, there I I, I believe the the general approach um, uh, makes sense. Uh, I, I do consumer protection as well. With the FTC does both and I've done both. I'm the only person that ever besides I was FTC chair once upon a time. I'm the only person ever to run both of the enforcement bureaus. So I have a hat in each in each area. Uh, and the the we turned the FTC into a fraud fighting organization and it and the Supreme Court uh uh reached a decision that that there's a narrow piece of legislation that would that would help the commission fight 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 fraud there always uh new learning to be done uh if if you believe that the consumer is is the is the north star and that economics should should guide you you know economic learning changes and you know one of the oddities is the people at the FTC and DOJ are sitting on this marvelous group of industrial organization economists, and they have a lot of internal data from their investigations, and they could actually mine that data to test some of the assertions they're making. And they've now been in charge for over two years, and they've done none of this. Uh, very strange, you know, very strange. Uh, I've always been a big believer uh, in, uh, you know, in, in 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 evidence. I mean, I've changed my mind about about issues over the year, over the years. Even you know, my 15 minutes of fame in life is we did the National Do Not Call Registry when I was chairman, and the the rule we adopted, the final rule we adopted was significantly different than the rule the rule we proposed. You know, people people said it was going to have issues, and so we we changed it. But but as you were mentioning, you know, I think these people have preconceived ideas of of the way the world the world should work, and that's again is dangerous. Tim, that's an outstanding paper. I think it was an outstanding conversation. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jim.